6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 32 through 37. A threat to our life changes our entire value system instantly. Instantly. It's amazing that if you are hit dry ice on the S's here on I-95 and you spin on the dry ice, let's assume you don't hit anything, no damage is done, but boy, does that change your driving habits for maybe a few blocks anyway, you know. (laughs) C.S. Lewis explains this so eloquently in his famous work. He, He says, We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, And everyone who has watched Glutton shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can even ignore pleasure. But pain insists about being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our consciousness, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That was, uh, let's see, I get the reference. Yeah, the problem of pain that uh, he's famous for writing. Have you seen the movie Shadowlands? It really deals with the development of that. Well, very well. Anthony Hopkins plays C.S. Lewis. Anyway, moving on. Well, I was going to go on and bring up a second point about pain. He says, If there be a messenger with him and an interpreter, one among a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. Wow. Those few verses are a summary in advance of the whole gospel. Here by Elihu, by the Holy Spirit, given to Job. What is he talking about here? A messenger with him. An interpreter, one in a thousand, to show unto man his uprightness. Then, then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Oh, really? His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth and so on. We're talking here about being born again through the role and involving a ransom and a mediator. Let's move on. See, there's a light growing in Job's heart. In chapter 9, Job could cry out, there is no umpire. Use the word daysman in the, in the King James, but there's no umpire between us that can lay his hand upon us, both man and God. Oh, really? Sure there is. He came later, of course. Then chapter 16, Job goes on and says, he declares, even now behold my witnesses in heaven and he who vouches for me is on high. See his insights growing. Chapter 19, he declares, this is the great one for me. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand on that latter day upon the earth. And though after my my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Declaration of the Old Testament of the bodily resurrection. Fabulous piece. And and then verse 23, he says, uh, he realized 
He knows the way that I take. He, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So Job has come all the way to realize, a mediator, and he also articulates the fact that he's going to, at the end, after the mediator guides him, he will be restored. Anyway, moving on to verse 26. Elihu continues, He shall pray unto God, and he shall be favorable unto him. He shall see his face with joy. He shall render unto man his righteousness. He looketh upon men, and if they say, any say, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and profit me not. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. See, pain did that. So, so Elihu now exhorts Job, Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man to bring back his soul from the pit to be enlightened with the light of the living. Mark well, O Job, hearken unto me and hold thy peace, and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. If not, hearken unto me, hold thy peace, and I shall teach thee wisdom. Now Job's silence here indicates Job is now ready to listen. And when Elihu finishes, God himself will pick up the, the, the ball from there. He'll be, and we shall see. Now, his next, his next chapter, chapter 34, basically Elihu's message is, your God, your God is too small. Verse 1, furthermore, Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, O ye wise men, give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. For the ear trieth the words as the mouth tasteth meat, and let us choose, choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Now he's going to re-examine Job's view of God in detail, inviting everybody, that's us, to pay attention and to join in judgment. Verse 5, For Job hath said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Should I lie against my right, my wound is incurable without transgression. See, part of Job's problem is he sees God as unjust, unfair, and unwilling to explain what's going on. That's Job's perceptions here. Elihu continues, verse 7, What man is like Job, who drinketh up scorning like water? Which goeth in the company with the workers of iniquity, and walketh with wicked men? For he hath uh, said, It profiteth man nothing, that he should delight himself with God. That's a strange statement from a man who began with, Lord, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That was chapter 1, if you recall. See, now Job seems to have adopted the the uh, same attitude as the ungodly. What advantage is it to me to say to behave myself? I might as well have sinned. That argument is going to be examined in detail. See, Satan declared that he would bring Job to the place where he would curse God to his face. And to do that first, he has to make Job distrust God and feel that he's been treated unfairly before he'll curse God to his face. And that's, that's Remember, that was Satan's announced goal way back in chapter 1. So God's intervening here by wise words from a spirit-filled young man to keep Job from that final fatal step. So from chapters 10 through about 30, Elihu now takes up the truth about God's character. First, God is a just rewarder. He cannot be unjust. Verse 10, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. Any time that you pray, you open yourself to God and you put a reservation on that. Gee, God, I'll go anywhere you ask except California. Or whatever, okay. Every time you do that, you're declaring that you don't trust God to know best what's, for, what's best for you. 
See, anytime you put a, a restriction on an answer to prayer, you're not trusting Him. Your prayer really should be, Thy will be done. Whatever it is, God, I'm ready. No restrictions. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, or from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. And by the way, no matter how long it will take, God will do it. Second point is God is a sovereign authority. God is beyond accountability to man. Verse 13, Who hath given him a charge over the earth? Who hath disposed the whole world? If he has set his heart upon man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. Now, he's certainly not accountable to anybody. Certainly not man is the point. The third point is God is the impartial ruler of the universe. He goes on here, verse 16. If now thou hast understanding, hear this, hearken to the voice of my words. Shall even he that hateth right govern? Excuse me, he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes, ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the persons of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they shall die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight, and pass away, and the mighty shall be taken away without hand. (laughs) It's interesting. Those who prate the most loudly about justice never hesitate to offer flattery (laughs) to rulers... uh, 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 to partiality. Anyway, the fourth point, God is an omniscient judge. He knows everything. There's no investigating committee required for God. Verse 21, For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay upon man more than right. He should enter into judgment with God. He shall break in pieces mighty men without number and set others on their, in their stead. And by the way, here in your notes, just put Psalm 139. In the interest of time, I won't go there. You can just insert Psalm 139 here, which basically God knows our thoughts before they take place, before they take shape. God is outside the time domain. All these paradoxes emerge because we view them from within the time domain. Recognize God is not physical. He's outside. Time is a physical property. He's outside time. Not somebody who has lots of time. He is somebody outside time. He knows the end from the beginning. So he knows your thoughts even before they take shape in your, in your heart. Anyway, the next point is he, God is the absolute executor. Verse 25. Therefore he knoweth their works and he overturneth them in the night so that they are destroyed. He striketh them as wicked men in the open sight of others. Because they are turned back from him, he would not consider any of his ways. That's the root issue, by the way. Because they would not consider any of his ways. That's the real root problem. Verse 28, So they cause the cry of the poor to come to him, and they hear the cry of the afflicted. And when he giveth quietness, who can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who can behold him? And whether it be done against a nation or against a man only, that the hypocrite reign not, and that the less the people be ensnared. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should it be according to thy mind, he will recompense it whether thou refuse or whether thou choose. And not I, therefore, speak what thou knowest. See, it's not reform that God is after. He desires repentance and relationship. He wants you to surrender the right to run your own life. He'll accept no other basis for relationship. 
God has given you free will. God has given you sovereignty, and that's a scary thing when you understand it. The smartest thing you can do with it is give it right back. Give it right back. Verse 34, Let men of understanding tell me, and let a wise man hearken unto me. Job hath spoken without knowledge. His words were without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his, of his answers for wicked men. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin. He his, clappeth his hands among us and multiplied his words against God. See, Job is a righteous man. His heart is right. God vindicated him right up front in this, this whole book. He wants to serve God. But he thinks he can do it by his own efforts. That's the other root problem dealing with here. And the toughest problem or lesson that God would teach us is to see evil in what we think is good. Teach us that evil, what we think is evil, is nothing, is, is nothing but good. In what we think is nothing but good. Our best is as filthy rags. Remember Isaiah 64, 6. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And you know what the Hebrew really says. We went through that last time, didn't we? Our righteousness is like used menstrual cloths. I think Isaiah was graphic. He knew how to... It's only our dependence on His gift of righteousness that will ever be acceptable to God. And this is where... This is Romans 7, right here in the Old Testament. As you do this, now let's remember, continue to remember that it was God that initiated the contest, not Satan. It's God's initiative that Satan responded to here. Why did he do this? Why did Job go, go through all this? To teach you and me the ugliness of self-righteousness, among other things. Let's go to Job 35. We can go through the next three chapters quite quickly as Elihu you know, uh, answers Job's argument. First he restates it. I who spake more of and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidst, My righteousness is more than God's? But for thou saidst, What advantage will it be unto thee, and what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? I will answer thee and thy companions with thee. First of all, he's going to say you're inconsistent. That's what he's going to say, verse 5. Look unto me, look unto the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what doest thou against him? And if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art. Thy righteousness may profit the son of man. See, what he's saying, what you do or do not, doesn't change God or affect him in any way. God will be God no matter what you do. Verse 9, By reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed to cry. They cry out by reason of the arm of the Almighty, but none saith, Where is God my Maker, who giveth songs in the night? who teacheth us more than the beasts of the earth, or maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven. There they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of evil men. See, men cry for help, but God knows that they are simply crying for relief. Relief. They want to be delivered from the painful effects of their sin. But then they want to go on, return to their sin. Substitute the word sin for selfish. They want to be delivered from the painful effects of being, self, of being selfish. But once the pain's gone, they want to they'll go right back to being selfish. See, they're, try, they're crying for help, but they're really just trying to use God. And this is one of the reasons, Elihu is arguing, is the reason for God's silence. He knows what they're really asking. 
Verse 13, Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it, although thou mayest sayest thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him, therefore trust thou in him. This is a reference to Job's request for a trial before, remember? Verse 15, But now, because it is not so, he hath visited his anger, yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain, he multiplieth words without knowledge. Elihu is trying to be gentle, but he is speaking the truth in love here. Let's go on to verse 36, the glory of God. Here we go. We're going to start a big buildup going on here. Elihu also preceded and said, Suffer me a little, and I will show thee that I have yet to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, and will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. From afar. He's saying that in Hebrew, he's saying it's not coming from me personally. This is another allusion to the fact that he's speaking by the Spirit here. Verse 4, For truly my word shall not be false. He that is perfect in knowledge is with thee. This is not brash or arrogant, as some commentators do contend. The one he refers to is the one who is perfect in knowledge, we'll discover in verse 16. So he's making allusion here to the Holy Spirit. When we take the whole thing, it becomes very clear. He's speaking by means of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, he's going to talk about God being mercy, merciful and justice. Behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. He preserveth the, not the life of the wicked, but giveth right to the poor. He draweth not his eye, withdraweth not his eyes from the righteous, but... With kings are they on the throne, and yea, he doth establish them forever, and they are exalted. And if they be bound in fetters, and be holding cords of affliction, and he showeth them their work, and they, the transgressions that they have exceeded. And uh, he openeth also their ear to discipline, and commandeth that they return from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity, and their years in pleasures. But if they obey not, they shall perish by the sword, and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart heap up wrath, they cry not when he bindeth them. They die in youth. Their life is among the unclean. He delivereth the poor in his affliction and open the ears of oppression. Now, Elijah is going to talk about Job's perilous position here. Verse 16. Even so would he have removed thee out of the strait into a broad place where there is no straightness. And that which should be set on thy table should be full of fatness. But thou hast fulfilled the judgment of the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold on thee, because there is wrath. Beware, lest he take thee away from his stroke, and then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. Will he esteem thy riches? Not gold, No, not gold, nor all the forces of strength. Desire not the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, regard not iniquity, for this hast thou chosen rather than affliction. And now we're going to have the big sweep, which I'll call the glory of God. Starting about in the next verse, all the way through the equivalent verse, roughly verse 22, 24 of the next chapter. God is beyond man's instruction. Verse 22, God, God exalteth by his power, who teacheth him? Who hath enjoined him his way? Who can say, thou hast wrought iniquity? Remember that thou magnify his work, which men behold. Every man may see it. Man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great, and we know him not, neither can the number of his years be searched out. For he maketh small the drops of water, they pour down rain according to the vapor thereof, which clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. And by the way, here's a description of the water cycle. Try to find this in textbooks that are a few hundred years ago. You won't find it. And yet Solomon comments on it, even in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The whole water cycle, the, the fact that it evaporates, clouds distill upon man and so forth. So, Solomon asked the question, why do all the rivers run in the sea, and yet the sea doesn't get full? And you saw, you recognize there's a water, what we know is a water cycle. Anyway, we move on. Verse 29. 
Also, can any understand the spreadings of the clouds or the noise of his tabernacle? Behold, he spread his light upon it, and it covereth the roots. Actually, it says bottom, but the roots of the sea. For by them judgeth he the people. He giveth meat in abundance. The clouds he over, with clouds he overcometh the light, and commandeth it not to shine by the cloud that becomes between. And the noise thereof speweth concerning it, and the cattle also concerning the vapor. Now, he's going to talk about God's doings in nature. He's going to talk about it in the autumn storm, from verse 27, then in the winter, in the first 13 verses of chapter 37, and finally in the summer following. Let's go to chapter 37. And by the way, it, it seems from the language that a, a, a very dramatic uh, electric storm is, uh, it breaks out. And you probably need to live on a prairie to understand this. The people who live in this region have seen some wonderful, fabulous lightning storms. If you live on the West Coast or in a big city, sometimes you miss that. But in the, in the prairies especially, it's just a few things that are more dramatic than a good lightning storm. That's apparently what's going on here. It's the background for the following words. Uh, 37 verse 1. At this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of its place. Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that cometh out of his mouth. He directeth unto the whole of heaven and his lightning unto the ends of the earth. After it a voice roareth and he thundereth with the voice of his excellency. He will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. For he saith to the snow, Be thou on the earth. Likewise to the small rain and to the great rain of his strength. He sealeth up the hand of every man that all men shall know his work. Then the beasts go into dens and remain in their places. And out of the south cometh a whirlwind and the cold out of the north. And by the breath of God frost is given and the breath of the waters is straightened. And by the watering he wearieth the thick cloud. He scattereth his bright cloud and is turned round about by his counsels. That they who that they may do uh, whatever he commandeth upon the face of the world and the earth. By the way, it sounds like he's watching uh, it on a weather satellite. Do you notice this? Is round about it, it, it's it's talking about spirals, round about his council, and so forth. I, I love that. Anyway, verse 13, he causes it to come, whether for correction or for his hand or for mercy. Hearken unto this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Dost thou know when God has disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Dost thou know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him, which is perfect in knowledge? By the way, the most complicated computer programs in existence are of the weather, and they're very imperfect. So all this stuff is that he's challenging. Do you understand these things? Even today, with all our science of meteorology and the most elaborate computer models we're able to formulate, they're still really unable to adequately model even just the weather. Just a reality. I'm not uh, any competent meteorologist will point that out. Anyway, moving on, verse 17. How thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the south wind. Hast thou with him spread out the sky which is strong and the molten looking and, and as a molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. See, not only is Job, he can't do any of these things. He cannot explain him in verses 14 to 16. He can't duplicate them in verses 7 to 18. And he can't command them in verse 19 to 20. So Elihu closes now with a final sort of glimpse of the matchless majesty of God. Verse 20. Shall it be told him that I speak? If a man speak, surely he shall be swallowed up. And now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds, but the wind passeth and cleanseth them, and the fair weather cometh out of the north with God is terrible majesty. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Many do therefore fear him. He respecteth not any that are wise of heart. You know, throughout the entire Bible, 
The only man or woman that ever receives anything from God is one with a humble heart. Humble heart. A humble heart on one extreme, pride on the other. Well, we've, we've, we've made it <laughs> through this tour de force by our friend Elihu. The very next voice we'll hear from the text will be the voice of God himself. He steps in now in chapters 38 and following. And uh, boy, that's going to be fun. Is that rich with discoveries. So it's one of my favorite parts of the scripture. We'll get into that in our next session. Let's stand for a closing prayer. And let's do indeed bow our heart, heart before the, our Father. Father, we thank you for your loving care of each of us. We also thank you for our mediator, who indeed found a ransom for us in his own life's blood poured out on our behalf, who has made a way to set aside the daily contamination of our sins and helps us to face every day fresh and vital, forgiven, alive, without guilt, without a sense of rejection, and having sent to us adequate power by which we do live and do the things we ought to do. Father, we thank you for the peace, the joy, the hope, and the love that your Son, Jesus, has brought into our lives. Father, we just do ask you to reignite in each of us a new hunger and passion for your word. We do ask, Father, that you would illuminate the steps before us that we might be more bold as we take those steps that you've ordained for us. Help us, Father, to be more responsive to your will in our lives. We be, that we'd be, we would be more fruitful stewards of your great gifts and more pleasing in thy sight as we commit ourselves this night into your hands without any reservation in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music